G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast, our summer edition as we creep closer to Christmas, just uh, 11 days away as we record this episode. Uh, things in the, uh, I guess, business corporate world grinding down to a halt. Uh, plenty of football about though, AFL pre-season training in full swing and we've got a fair bit of news out of that as I say very good morning to my footyology co-host Mark Fine. How's it going Finey? Very well, you're quite right. We are broaching Christmas and just a little less Christmassy around town. You know I live not far from the CBD and all the normal bells and whistles, uh, obviously not last year but going back pre-COVID this time of the year, everything would have been tinselled up and fairy lit, but I sort of miss it. I'm not, I don't celebrate Christmas, but I enjoy the Christmas spirit. And I must say, I hope we do get back to it. Just, I think it's a nice feel. And I do have something to say about this week's program. It's, I, I am still picking my jaw up off the ground, Rowan. About what? I'm shocked at your music selection. This way. I don't. Yes, I don't dislike it, but yeah, I just didn't think that that was in your bailiwick. So I'm looking forward to getting your reasons behind it. Really? It'll be good. Oh, oh yeah. I, I, I wonder what our listeners will think. We Wait for it, people. And I, I was surprised, really surprised. All right. My tip is they won't be that surprised. I think it's a, a, a bona fide classic. Oh, no, no. Really good song. No, Don't no, get I, me wrong. I understand what you're saying, but I think it's, yeah. uh, I think it sort of fits within my usual specifications. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, well, uh, interesting when we get to that. Um, yeah, music choices have certainly been different and they are again. Um, all right, but plenty of news to cover off on first before we get to vinyl and video, before we get to life hacks, and before we get to fantastic footy flashbacks. So let's do that right now. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Well, let's kick off with some captaincy news. And Greater Western Sydney have decided to go with co-captains. Not two, but three co-captains for the 2022 season after extensive polling. Uh, I've seen polling not only of players, but of um, staff members as well, which is interesting. More than 50 people involved in the poll and uh, they overwhelmingly voted the following trio into joint captaincy roles and that trio is the uh, incumbent skipper Stephen Canelio um, and that'll be a relief to him I think because there's been a bit of speculation for well, a year or so now about whether he should continue in that role but joining him in the captaincy now we have Josh Kelly that brilliant midfielder who uh, I, I think uh, seems, well, that move would be a bit of a no-brainer, I think. And 
The uh, well, another no-brainer in terms of, um, I guess, ability and on-field example, off-field or disciplinary, would you necessarily have made him captain? So an interesting appointment, and I'm speaking, of course, about Toby Green. So Toby Green, Josh Kelly, Stephen Canelio are co-captains for the Giants in 2022. What do you think of that decision, Finey? Yeah, look, I'm not sure about co-captains. St Kilda have co-captains this year, so it's not uncommon in the AFL. It's funny, those three players... It's a little from column A, a little from column B, and a little from column C, isn't it? You've got Josh Kelly, the sort of all-round golden boy, Toby Green, the enfant terrible, and Stephen Canilio, the maybe um, injured warrior trying to fight back both in terms of uh, his best football and also his leadership. So it represents three different brands of captaincy. Maybe that's what appeals to GWS. I wouldn't be having the staff voting on it, though. I think it's a player's choice. Rowan, what do you think? Well, football departments, uh, I think, get heavily involved in uh, some captaincy selections. Uh, look, it can lead to trouble if the player players are at odds with what the footy department thinks, although it's interesting that they didn't actually even say football department, they said staff, so uh, it'd be interesting if the, um, you know, property steward had a vote on who should be captain, but... Uh, the reception? Yeah, well, look, the Toby Graham thing is, you know, interesting. I mean, are they going with him? I mean, it's one argument, perhaps, just playing devil's advocate here, that they wanted to make him sole captain, but they thought he'll probably get rubbed out for his obligatory few games, so we better have someone else in the role. And, of course, um, when they were unveiled, I mean, that's what most of the discussion was about, and he did the mea culpa again. Um, probably the first time he's spoken publicly about that final suspension. Uh, in fact, finally, you could say he broke his silence. Um, <laughs> God, I hate you, that expression. You love that, don't you? Well, of all the things I hate in the media, that's probably about the worst, because, well, what, is he not not said anything since last August or whenever it was, broke his silence. And they use it now about the most trivial things. Anyway, this wasn't trivial, but he did say, obviously my season didn't end the way I wanted it to and I've got a bit to learn there and it's going to be a delayed start to the year. Well, you can say that again. He's going to miss the first five games, of course, uh, initially suspended for three games and then the AFL successfully appealed that and had it up to six so he missed the Giants' second final last um, last year, last season, and will miss the first five games. Um, he said, I spoke to the group at the time, but we were going into a final, so I didn't want to be too much of a distraction. Obviously, I've got a bit to work on. I'm well aware of that, and so is everyone else. Um, but look, I mean, in terms of the on-field example, can't question his credentials. As to the other two, well... You know, I think we'd all like to see Cornelio lift his game a bit. He's a, a likeable guy and, um, you know, quite a sensitive soul, I think, and um, we'd like to see him sort of work out as a captain. Josh Kelly, we all know how good he is. But I'm a bit like you, Finey. I thought the co-captain thing was a bit uh, passe these days. But um, you, the Saints going with it too. Tell us what's going on with them. Oh, well, they're just going on with what they did last year. <laughs> Uh, maybe more in respect rather than expectation. 
it's Jack Steele and Jaron Geary because, of course, Jaron Geary um, barely played last season and this will be his last year, you'd imagine. Not sure whether he's part of the best 22 even. But, yeah, they've sort of respectfully maintained Jack Steele and Geary, even though Jack Steele led the team admirably. So it's captain and a bit, I reckon, at St Hilda. All right, let's move on. And uh, and another ongoing story. We seem to have been talking about this one for a long time now, but Jordan Degoe, um, of course, still waiting to um, face the music uh, via Zoom, fortunately for him, uh, in New York. But uh, interesting, on Monday, finally uh, Collingwood wheeled out Brody Grundy, uh, one of their leaders, to um, introduce Collingwood's recruits to the... Uh, the public and, and their fan base. Um, and obviously he was asked about the Dugowie situation. I wouldn't say he threw him under the bus, but he certainly was pretty clear that, um, uh, you know, Dugowie has created a rod for his own back. And um, I, I don't know, I, I just sensed that he'd been worded up about not being seen to be too sympathetic because when the you might remember when the Dugowie thing initially happened in New York that um, there was uh, I think a quote from Braden Maynard and there was a quote from another Collingwood player and they're saying oh you know we've got to wrap our arms around him Jeremy Howe might have been the other one I think and I was quite critical of that at the time and I'm not saying this is why but um, I, I thought it was quite notable um, to, uh, Grundy's comments yesterday he said that Dugowie was a big enough boy to handle it um, and he said it's something we can't stand for. And, you know, he, he went to some lengths to point out that Collingwood has tried to address its culture issues with the Do Better report, and um, that has been a big focus, and they're trying to, um, I think he said, we're, we're working really hard to make this club something that we're proud of. Um, it's pretty hard to imagine a Collingwood person saying something like that under the stewardship of Eddie Maguire. I reckon it, it had a Collingwood person said something like that, Ed would have slapped them around a bit. But um, I think Collingwood is definitely trying to remake its image. And this, um, I guess, sort of not overly sympathetic uh, comment from Brody Grundy was part of it. I, I found it quite interesting, really. I thought it was an interesting sort of PR exercise. Another one coming up for Collingwood later in the week with the AGM and... Jeff Brown looking likely to become the new president. But, you know, we're talking about a, a famous old club finey that seems pretty determined to remake itself. Yeah, spot on. I'm in your corner here. We often are at a den, but I think he might have been, if not worded up, certainly given a, a sense of where the club sits on this. And that is that there is no free pass here for Jordan to go or anybody who in the future transgresses in a way that brings the club into the spotlight in a negative manner. I mean, Collingwood want to step in tune with the rest of the competition. They don't want to be seen to be a, a sort of dragging behind. These are, and we know the workplace, let's call football clubs the workplace, Rowan. The workplace now is demanding of a standard that is inclusive, respectful and lawful. And unfortunately, or I think fortunately, 
footballers carry that workplace with them 12 months of the year. Why? Because they're high-profile individuals, example setters, and important important members of the community, whether they like it or not. So, well done, not just Grundy, but Collingwood, for being a club that now one gets a sense is part of the greater football community and greater community at large. We step mm. forward in many, many ways. And to that end, it is interesting that somebody like Braden Maynard, who I think is life and soul sort of character at the football club, in this period, recommits to the football club. There's a sense of good people at Collingwood this week giving the club the thumbs up and people not quite with their minds wrapped around where Collingwood's going to be in the future, yet to be re-embraced by the club. That will happen, but it won't happen easily. Yeah, it's an interesting one, Maynard. He is a, a bit of a, a heart and soul player for them. Did, am I right in saying, yeah, wow, he has had seven seasons at the club. doesn't feel like that long. Um uh, yeah, look, it's 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 good that he's uh, recommitted to them. Um, good also that it enables people to use another well-worn football cliche, uh, along with breaking his silence, which is turned his back on free agency. No one ever decides to just sign with a club anymore when free agency is on the table. They turn their back on it. In fact, I was actually privy to negotiations between Maynard, his manager, and rival clubs, which sussed him out about... Um, free agency and I saw the meeting in a coffee shop and the other parties came in and sat down and they said Braden are you interested in coming to our club as a free agent and he didn't say anything he just got up from the table and, and turned turn, his yes. back on them yeah that is what is that's what you do if you don't want if you don't want to be a free agent you just give them the old you give them the old buttocks did I go to a lot of trouble to do that? No, no, no. I knew where you were going. I think it works better as a visual, but it's just, God, there's some, God, there's some stupid phrases in football journalism, and that's one of them. Yep, Braden Maynard has turned his back on free agency. Um, probably fortunately, after his comments about Dugowie, he didn't, however, break his silence on it. Um, How about when free agency turned their back on the footballer? <laughs> well, that happened a couple of times at St Kilda over the sort of uh, trade period because I think Jack Billings and Seb Ross might have had free agency turn their back on them. <laughs> right, okay. Um, uh, a bit harsh. I and mean, Seb Ross has been a pretty decent player. Anyway, let's not go there. But we will speak about your club, though, because um, this is an interesting one. Best on ground in the Sanford Grand Final, deserved winner of the Jack Odie medal. And I watched the Sanford Grand Final, and this guy absolutely starred. Jack Hayes, mature age player, 24 years old. Um, he is headed to your Saints, Finey, for a tryout. And uh, in order for them, hopefully, to pick him up as a, what is it, the SS or supplementary uh, list selection. Um, which they might be able to do. So he's going to give uh, give it a crack for the Saints. Uh, he's coming off a fantastic season. As I said, won the Jack Odie medal, the equivalent of a Norm Smith medal. Finished equal third in the McGarry medal. Um, his grand final performance, and look, he plays for Wood, played for Woodville, West Torrens, the Eagles, who smashed Glenelg in the grand final. Poor Glenelg, they lose a lot of grand finals over there, but he had a ripping game. He had 26 Possessions, uh, nine marks, 12 hitouts, 
seven clearances. He's uh, fair to say he's a utility. Spent some time in the ruck in that game, obviously, but played up forward, kicked the goal, complained defence. So um, the Saints have done well with some sort of uh, mature age pickups from the senior leagues, haven't they? Callum Wilkie was one of them, I think, wasn't he? So it uh, could be something in a similar vein. St Kilda's um, obviously recovered from a very traumatic period in the 80s when going to South Australia was calamitous. Do you want me to name a few of them? Damien Kitschke, Milan Philetic, Wayne Slattery. Wayne Slattery, Daryl Cowie, Daryl Hewitt, Rowan Smith. Wow. Remember Rowan Smith? I do remember Rowan Smith, the bald-headed Port Adelaide player. And I saw him play a fair bit in a lot of those Port Adelaide grand finals, and he could play. Well, well, how many games did he play? Three. What, what, was he just no good? or Something like that. Hey, you know what? It's always difficult when you start off in a manner that draws, um, well, attention, but not for football reasons. And... It was his first ever game was a practice game for St Kilda, and he ran out on the field with his entire head covered in zinc. You know that um, bald head of his—the yeah. right thing to do, but I think back in the day caused a bit of derision. Um, anyhow, much better resourcefulness resources provided by South Australia this time because Callum Wilkie from South Australia. You, you mentioned mature age recruits. Tom Highmore from South Australia mm. looks like a real ongoing and important player for St Kilda, centre-half back. Cooper Sharman, though not South Australian. Interesting football journey, Cooper Sharman. He's originally from the Riverina. He's played for Baldwin, but he was recruited from South Australia and he looked good. That was the mid-season draft pick. And, of course, Jack Hayes. If you, if you had to create a name of the perfect St Kilda recruit, surely it's Jack Hayes, the surname of one of the all-time greats, Hayes. And, of course, if you're searching for a first name at St Kilda, it has to be Jack. How many Jacks on the list now for the Saints? A lot. Um, oh, let's not go through them. Well, because, remember, they picked up Jack Perris in, as a B-category draftee, the son of Nova Perris, yep. and the late Daniel Batman, and he's a Jack, so... More Jacks at St Kilda, potentially. Do they have a Jill playing in the women's team? Because it could be like that um, uh, band that plays uh, <laughs> at the Air Force Base in Spinal Tap, three Jacks and a Jill. Well, they, they, they you know, St Kilda's often been mooted as a possible destination for Ben King. And that would give St Kilda a comfortable full house because they'd easily have three Jacks and two Kings. Very good. Uh, sounds ace. Um, all right, let's. Uh, <laughs> oh God, let's finish this off, please. Um, uh, very quickly, staying in South Australia, Fisher Mackenzie, Crows defender, has been diagnosed with stress fractures to the leg. Uh, he will miss a month. Probably good timing in that regard, given that the uh, Christmas breaks coming up, so uh, should be back on the track uh, roundabout when um, the Crows and other clubs resume their pre-season program. Uh, it's an interesting one, Mac, is he because he didn't actually play a game last year after looking quite promising in 2020, so he'd need a decent pre-season. 
and some senior footy next season to uh, keep his spot on the list, you'd think. And finishing off, Finey, uh, has been a bit written in the last few days about Carlton, who have had a four-day camp in the Grampians and uh, much bonding was done, apparently. There was a day-long hike and, crucially, some fireside chats. And we all know what happens there. Remember when Geelong did so well in 2007 and we had all those stories about Steve Johnson's, uh, you know, uh, coming good and and they'd gone, all the Geelong guys had gone on a camp and they were doing the fireside chats and the leading teams, truth sessions and all this stuff. You always, when a side wins a flag, you always hear back to what they did in the pre-season, even Melbourne actually, um, what they did last pre-season. So we may look back on this Grampians um, extended camp and as some sort of turning point in Carlton's recent history. Hopefully the legacy is um, more favourable than... uh, The only other thing I remember of Carlton's pre-seasons, and that was when Levi Casbolt started. They went on a Yarra boat cruise, got him absolutely wasted, and he had to be carried home. Remember that one? Yeah, I do. I hope Carlton don't run into the neo-Nazis. What do you want? <laughs> oh, the Grampians, yeah. Yeah, uh, for anyone wondering, just like me, then what the hell is he talking about? Yes, there was a story in The Age a while back about um, the some of the uh, unsavoury uh, neo-Nazi types uh, having their own little bonding weekend <laughs> in the Grampians and uh, coming face-to-face with some of the locals or some more normal folk. And, um, yes, that's uh, that was a bit of worry, actually, that story. Um, anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> I've, got, I've got one for you, Rowan, because yeah. I know you love that term, break, breaking their silence. Yeah, who broke their silence? Jaden Stevenson first broke his hip and now he's broken his side. Oh, Jaden Stevenson, yes. Speaking about the infamous um, prang on the bicycle. Yeah. So, what I, I didn't actually read his breaking of a silence. How did he, did he break his silence spectacularly? Well, he said that David Noble had been disappointed but supportive. Uh, for people who don't know, straight after the season, he was horsing around with his flatmates, had a bit to drink, and then went in the backyard to do bicycle tricks. Now, I don't reckon you'd need even to be having something to drink to make bicycle tricks in the backyard a fairly dangerous thing to do. But, but he's a grown man. He's like in his 20s. Just think about it. It's silly. Anyhow... He suffered a French hip fracture, said it's the most painful thing he's been through in his life. Um, I'm sure some women who've gone through childbirth gave that the <laughs> that it deserved, but he was able to attend the first day of training with the first two. That's traditional at clubs, isn't it? Day one of training is for first to fourth year players. Mm. Funny, that one. Anyhow, that's become de rigueur. And he's on track and training well, apparently. Well, hopefully when he did turn up for the resumption of training, someone gave him a pair of training wheels to put on his uh, BMX or whatever it is. Yes. I mean, as, as silly as it sounds, Rowan, didn't... I think Australia won a gold medal at the Olympic Games doing something that amounts to bicycle tricks in the backyard. So 
Yeah, Maybe. I think we did. I can't remember his name actually. Wasn't he? He lives in America or something. Yeah, correct, correct. Uh, <laughs> Suitably Americanized. Yes, yes. Or who, who are we to laugh in the face of BMX gold? Um, all right, that is enough. <laughs> <laughs> we are perfectly placed to do that, Robert. Yeah, we're struggling for news. Uh, all right, that is enough for news. But time now to uh, continue our countdown of our favourite 20 movies and songs of all time. It's vinyl and video. Vinyl and Video, pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, we are down to number 13 in this countdown, which is gripping Australia. Uh, talk on social media of nothing else. What will Rocco and Finey come up with uh, in this week's countdown? Because uh, there's been some weird and wonderful choices, certainly uh, a wide array of genres in both uh, movie making and music covered, and that will remain the case. But number 13, and we're going to start with movies, and um, this finding, I think, pretty sure this is the most recent film in my top 20. It's from 2015, and it's an absolute beauty. Um, I would say, it's interesting, because I've got a couple of films of the same genre, but I, I would say this is the most searingly accurate portrayal of a craft close to my heart um, that I have seen, directed by Tom McCarthy. I'm speaking of the movie Spotlight, which is about uh, the Boston Globe's investigation into child sex abuse within the Catholic Church in Boston. And if you that's sounding... Familiar, sadly, um, this is a, a worldwide phenomenon and uh, obviously there's been issues in Australia and particularly in, in Melbourne, but uh, right around the world. And um, this is a story of how um, this endemic scourge um, was left, well, unreported and unacted upon in Boston going back right to the mid-70s, um, set in the early 2000s, so a contemporary setting. It's just a fantastic, um, I guess, an investigative movie almost. It, it basically tracks how the newspaper investigation unfolded and the, the you know forensic sort of work involved and the countless hours of interviewing and researching. And, uh, you know, if you ever wanted, you know, there's a lot of portrayals of newspapers in movie making and some of them, are pretty close to how reality is, and some are right off the charts, nothing like it. But but this is just so accurate, I reckon, particularly for that time. Don't forget that. Uh, and, and that's actually an important factor too, because sadly you wonder, would this even be possible now, given the way newsrooms have shrunk even in the last 20 years and the amount of resources that they're often able to extend to in-depth investigations? Would this story still be uncovered. That's a that's a chilling thought. But it's so well done. Tom McCarthy, director, um, starring Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, who is the um, editor of the investigations team on the Boston Globe, which is called Spotlight, hence the movie title. Rachel McAdams plays another 
reporter who gets involved in the case. Um, just a terrific film, totally gripping. And uh, yeah, I, I absolutely love it. And as someone who, you know, loves journalism and loves the media, um, it was a very, very powerful uh, couple of hours. This I absolutely love this film. Fine, have you seen it? Yeah, I have. I, first of all, I am not pleased. I, I am sort of, um, in a way, relieved and, and gratified that this won the Academy Award for Best Picture. It's a movie of gravitas. It's a brilliant portrayal. Now, the fact that you who've lived a life, not only your own life as a journalist, but the son of a journalist, can add to the accuracy of the portrayal, one just gets a sense of the truth of it. You know, I remember part of the movie um, and, and part of the real world of journalism is this is a, a hot story, but, of course, it takes place during the period that encompassed uh, encompasses the period that included the attacks on the World Trade Centre. Yeah, well, in fact, that that sort of derails their correct. investigation for some time, yeah. Yeah, and, and that is, a, is it, it's a truth, isn't it, that, you know, a story that being covered by the journalists is absolutely jaw-droppingly important, loses momentum, and, and that's part of journalism, isn't it? And it, it, it sort of emboldens the, the side that had kept the secret for so long. It's, it's real, it's gritty. I'm a great fan of um, Keaton and Ruffalo, and I've got to say, in thinking about it, I'm surprised even that it wasn't rated more highly by you. So I look forward to the next 12 because it's so true, as you say, to the art that you hold so dear. Uh, that's a fair point. That's probably as much a legacy of me being wedded to things that I've loved for longer. You know, um, I think I have the opposite of recency bias, uh, if that's possible when it comes to this. But uh, yeah, that whole thing about timing with news stories is so true too. You just made me think of, I'll, I'll tell this very quickly, but because um, I read about this case again the other day, back in 1996, when I was on the Sunday Age, Andrew Rule, one of the best crime journalists Australia has seen and still going strong, uh, writes for the Herald Sun. Um, he wrote about this. This is one case he wrote about the other day, a woman called Jennifer Tanner, who... Um, was uh, killed, murdered in uh, Bonnie Doon in 1984, and it was set set up to look like a suicide. Um, and uh, some skullduggery uh, in involving her um, then husband and his brother, who was a cop uh, and uh, has appeared a lot in stories about this over the years. Anyway, um, initially swept under the carpet and declared to be a suicide. The case was reopened on the back of this story by Andrew Rule, which turned up new evidence about it in 1996, so 12 years later. And um, the Sunday Age had it, uh, I remember on this particular Saturday, leaving the office to go to the football, and they had the proofs of the front page of the paper, and this story was the entire front page spilling inside, you know, massive story, great story. Anyway... Uh, sadly, when he picked up, <laughs> Andy's never forgive me, really, pick up the paper the next morning and uh, the Jennifer Tanner story was relegated to a single column down the side of the front page because that happened to be the same day or the same evening 
that the lights went out at Waverley in that Essendon St Kilda game finally. So that became <laughs> the front page. So I'm not saying it wasn't a decent story, but geez, the um, you know, in the whole scheme of things, the Jennifer Tennis story was a lot more. But there you go. It, it's sort of things as they happen. And that lights out story was so amazing for how it happened that uh, that sort of knocked an incredible story off the um, the main display on page one. Anyway, uh, fortunately, they got this investigation back on track after 9-11 and um, some big scalps were delivered, including the Archbishop of Boston who resigned uh, I don't know, resigned in disgrace. In fact, um, you know, not atypically was found another position, but uh, a massive story and um, a great expose of uh, some really important journalistic work. That is my number 13. Finally, what's your number 13 movie? Okay, number 13 for me is my favourite Woody Allen movie of all time. So I know that I'm in safe territory speaking with you because you're a big Woody Allen fan. And it's Broadway, Danny Rose. Look, I love Woody Allen. And this movie is, it it resonates with me so much because I'm very familiar with the surrounds, but also the dynamic. And the dynamic that I talk about is the start. And who amongst us hasn't done this? Sitting around a table with mates, sort of telling stories about, a guy we know, you know, there's there's always some guy we know that, you know, might just be surrounded by funny stories, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody's telling Broadway D- Danny Rose stories, Woody Allen's character, Danny Rose. And eventually one of the guys, he's actually the actor who plays Clompus in Seinfeld. Um, so people might know him. Take the pen, Jerry, take the pen. Um so he says, all right, sit down. I've got the best Danny Rose stories of all time. That actor's name, by the way, is Sandy Barron. And he goes and tells a story, which is the movie. And it's of Danny Rose, the off-Broadway talent agent, whose normal clientele include performing, you know, people with performing poodles and the man with the talking parakeet and a balloon act, you know, real losing acts. He's got this one act, and it's an old singer. His name's Lou, I think, Louis Canavo. He's an old sort of um, American-Italian singer. You might think, uh, what's his name, Bennett? That, Andy that, Bennett. I think Andy Bennett played for St Kilda. Um, is that his name? I think so. Anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's his big act, and he's reviving him. Mia Farrow plays that actor's girlfriend, Tina, but she's actually got an ex-boyfriend who's in the mob. And it becomes this love triangle, this mad story where poor little Danny Rose, he ends up being the beard, the fake boyfriend for Tina, and there's a hit put on him. It's got all the the typical sort of Woody Allen movie angst as expressed by the the very Jewish talent agent, Danny Rose. For me, it's hilarious. It's got plenty to it. And I just, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a romp. It's not one of his more painful or or turgid stories of, of tortured love. It's simply one sort of 
mistake leads to another mistake, leads to a chase, leads to mistaken identity. And all the while, poor Daddy Rose is copying it left, right and centre. It ends with a happy ending, though. And I'll, it's not a spoiler alert, because in the end, Danny Rose is awarded the greatest honour of all time. He gets a sandwich named after himself at the deli where they're telling the story. So at least that's at least he's got that going for him. So uh, not yeah, look, I, I I do like this movie a lot. Nineteen eighty four. Eighty four. Yeah, nineteen eighty four. Always interested me that it was made in black and white because yep. um, probably my two. All my favourite Woody Allen films are the early ones, right? The the sort of cross the line in the sand for me is Annie Hall, which is 1977. I really like Annie Hall, but all my favourite ones are the pure comedy stuff, you know, uh, Bananas, Sleeper, Take the Money and Run, et cetera, et cetera. But after Annie Hall, he still did a couple of, you know, out-and-out comedies. This is one of them. The one immediately before that, Zillig, made in 1983, was also shot in black and white. I've always wondered why, I can sort of get it with Zillig. I've always wondered why Broadway Danny Rose was in black and white though. Was Take the Money and, take the money and Run in black and white? No, no, it wasn't. Okay, all right. Um, yeah, why Broadway Danny Rose was in black and white? You're right. It, it, in terms of period piece, it doesn't really make any sense, but it certainly doesn't impinge on the movie from my perspective. Oh, gee, it was good. I really enjoyed it. Gee, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie, Finey, but you've inspired me to uh, to watch it again, I think. And, yeah, look, if you're younger or you haven't seen a lot of Woody Allen stuff and um, obviously um, very mixed views about him for obvious reasons these days, but uh, he did do some blisteringly funny stuff in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, into the 1980s, because that film is from 1984. So there are our number... 13 films, Broadway, Danny Rose for Finey, Spotlight for me. Let's talk music now. Now, Finey alluded to this at the top of the show. Very surprised he was by my uh, selection of this song, number 13. Um, we'll play, I've got an extended grab of this because it is such a great song, I reckon. But just let me set it up here. And it's one of these childhood memories. I was 13. It was a hot Saturday morning in East Malvern. I was sitting out the back listening to 3XY on the transistor radio. This is all true. And this song comes on and I just went, what is that? And three and a half minutes later, I just said, must have, must have. Ran in, raided my money box, got out the um, $3.99 or $2.99 or whatever I'd need to buy the single took two trams up to Electrocade's record store in Glenferry Road, Malvern, and bought this song, triumphantly bought it home and proceeded to play it the rest of the day. Because few songs I've heard in my lifetime have had, a, had, have had as big an immediate impact on me as this one did. What am I talking about? I reckon 90% of people will know it as soon as they hear a few bars. Let's have a listen.
Well, there you go. Anybody similar in age to ourselves, Rowan, know that is surrender by cheap trick. Now, the reason at the top of the show why I said I was sort of jaw-droppingly surprised is that it is very Main Street for you. Now, it's a, it's a really good song. I'm, I'm not saying it's it doesn't have its edge to it, but and I love that story because that that is so much a part of our childhood, isn't it? Catching two trams. Me catching two trams would have been to buy the first footy cards of the season. You know, or... my, my nickname was Two Trams Connolly. <laughs> it's Two Trams Connolly over there. I know him. Um, but, yeah, it's a really good song. I'm not saying I'm surprised because of the quality, but I'm surprised that literally a song that you heard on 3XY or one of the sort of commercial radio stations made your list because that's not normally where you um, go hunting. Oh, I think you um, you underplay my mainstream credentials. Don't forget, there wasn't much of an alternative scene in those days. So if you wanted to hear non-mainstream stuff, there wasn't a lot necessarily to listen to. And I was a huge listener to 3XY, as was all of Melbourne. Uh, in my childhood, and then later, you know, Eon FM, which became Triple M. I watched Countdown, all that stuff. But yeah, yeah. Look, this, this is, I would call this the definitive uh, power pop song. So, yeah, it's poppy. It's got great pop hooks, and that's the thing about Cheap Trick. They are great hooks. But it's still got a, a rock feel about it. The guitars, you know, it's great attack on the guitars, and the, the drums are quite heavy, and the, the vocals are good. They're a seriously good band, Cheap Trick, and um, I, I uh, have two of their albums. Dream Police was a follow-up. I, I love that song as well on that whole album. Um, they're a great band, and I, I think really underrated. Actually, if, this, if you feel like we do about this song or you hear it and you think uh, you'd like to read a bit more along those lines, there's a great piece we ran on Footyology recently by Paul Spurling about this song and, and uh, its impact and about Cheap Trick and um, their songwriting. Really interesting lyrics in this um, in this song as well. A lot of double entendres too about uh, various Indonesian junks and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, look, it's just a great song and uh, perhaps the only song in the history of the world where there's a, um, a key change before a single lyric has been uttered. That doesn't happen very often. Uh, and then another key change right at the end. But just a, every time I hear it, it never fails to, you know, make me sit up and want to hear the whole song. So hope you enjoyed it. If you're not familiar with it, I reckon most people that listen to this show probably are familiar with it. All right, Finey, your number 13 song. Okay, my number 13 song. I, I sort of, you travel down a bit of a road when you start thinking about your favourite songs. And the road I travelled down to get to this song was... I loved Madness, absolutely loved them the first time I heard them. So the music is Scar, and people might know bands like The Specials, Bad Manners, but Madness, probably the pin-up boys for Scar music coming out of England in the 70s, late 70s, and then into the early 80s, was their real Scar period. I'm not talking about, um, you know, My House or the more commercial songs that they had later on. Wasn't it Our House? Our House. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) In the middle of the street and Must Be Love. And those songs were very poppy and commercial. But this is off their 
first album, One Step Beyond. And it's not One Step Beyond, which I think is a great song, but it's a, a instrumental. This is Night Boat to Cairo. So a lot of this song is instrumental, heavy, heavily trumpeted, but here's the vocal aspect of Night Boat to Cairo. It's just All right, I feel a bit guilty about my reaction to this, Fanny, because I have to put my hand up here. I was never a big fan of ska music. Um, didn't dislike it as much as I disliked reggae, but I was never a fan of ska. I could never really get into madness or the specials. Actually, no, there's a few exceptions. I do really like uh, Ghost Town by the specials, um, but that's got a real sort of political edge to it about Thatcher's England. But um, look, the... The brass, yeah, it's good. You know what I think my problem with it is, and I'm not I'm not saying I'm right here, but I'm very serious about music and music that has sort of a, a novelty-ish sound to it or is too much fun, it sort of puts me off a bit. Does that make sense? You know, it's sort of I, like... I, I'm saying, um, you know what? When you said the thing, when you started that sentence, the word that came to mind is silliness. Yeah, you know, the sort of small hats and yeah. and, and crazy dad style, you know. But but it's sort of like novelty songs too. This is one of my knocks on the Beatles. I just reckon they had way too many novelty songs, and you know, like Yellow Submarine and Octopus's Garden and stuff like. It's like what? How can you get any pleasure out of listening to that? Like little ditties, you know. Music isn't fun. It's serious, and it's yeah, about. I yeah, anyway. yeah I, I hear what you're saying. So, I mean, there is ska music that is more edgy. You might prefer a track or you would prefer a track more than this one because this is, this is, uh, I, I don't like the term novelty song because I, I think that's more, you know, Monster Mash and Star Trekking and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. But, but um, a song by Bad Manners, Inner London Violence, which I love as well, was sort of a toss up between the two. And that's very gritty. But, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And, again, my church is broad and this is one of the sort of um, left of centre, let's just say, um, churchgoers. No, that is, that is true. You have one of the broader musical churches I, I think I've come across. I was just trying to remember the Australian ska band who it's just... Oh, it's gone out of my head. They were quite big for a while in the early 80s. Um, uh, dynamic Hypnotics. Remember I mean, them? You know what I was thinking? Are you thinking of the Dynamic Hypnotics? Because yeah. they were they were a a local pale comparison. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. We did. Yeah, we did. Scar wasn't that big here, was it? It was a real English thing. Anyway. Yeah. There was um, a Scar club in there was a Scar club to go to in. Fitzroy and Smith Street, Fitzroy. But was there? 
yet, but it was certainly English-based, not Australian. Did you have to wear one of those little sort of Middle Eastern, what do you call those things? The- a fez. A fez, yeah, you had to wear a fez <laughs> to get in. <laughs> funny, no. It's funny, I've been wearing a fez around lately in a, a Middle Eastern, pursuing some Middle Eastern activities. Um, <laughs> well, let's, let's move on. All right, have, there you, are, have you changed your name to Lamoco? No, not yet. <laughs> but I'm going to be living in Baghdad very shortly. Um all right, uh, there are our number 13 songs and movies of all time. Hope you enjoyed those choices. Tune in next week for number 12. But the uh, reminiscing doesn't end there because very soon we will have another nostalgia segment. In between, though, it's time for some sage advice on life. Life Hacks, Building a Better World. All right, as we announced last week, Life Hacks back on the Footyology podcast menu. And this is where we just uh, make an observation, something that's occurred to us uh, since we last spoke to you, something that's uh, come to our attention or something we've experienced that uh, uh, might be a vehicle for some uh, very poignant observations on on that or, or life itself. Um, but uh, maybe not necessarily that deep and meaningful. Uh, what's on your on? Uh, oh, let's try that again. What is on your life hacking agenda this week, Finey? Well, something amazing has come to my and my wife's attention in the last week or so. A touch scary, almost, but in this case, turned out to be sort of wonderful. What am I talking about? Well, look, the last couple of years has been a challenge for adults, but I think really challenging for young people, certainly for my kids who go to school, not being able to go to school on a regular basis, learning remotely, has been a lot of time spent on their own. And I don't know if this is the case with you, Rowan, but a teenage boy's room is his castle and our teenage boys, or certainly the younger of my two boys, the older boy now has uh, sort of emerged from his cave, but the castle that my younger son, about to turn 18, lives in is surrounded by a moat, surrounded by a fence, surrounded by a ditch, surrounded by barbed wire. In other words, hard to get into. So what's he been doing the last couple of years? Well, we found out in the last two weeks, and the reason I say a little bit scary is you can find out that they're building bombs or connecting with terrorist groups overseas because you've got no idea what goes on. Up there. I wasn't thinking that. I was channeling some an American sitcom or whatever where mum goes to clean the bedroom and finds <laughs> one of two things, porn or drugs. Yeah, neither of those. My son has emerged from COVID, Lucas, the youngest son. Now, this is fair income having entered COVID with zero expertise in this field, he has come out of COVID speaking conversational Japanese. (laughs) (laughs) That is such a fine thing to do, isn't it? He has spent two years, apparently, 30, between 20... What what, did he just, like, he walked out of his door and said, Konnichiwa. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep, we, we've got a Natalie's 
brother, the youngest brother, his his partner is Japanese, and Jeremy recently visited with Yukio, and he um, is currently sort of convalescing from a health issue, so he's not working. And Lucas, to everybody's stunned amazement, started speaking Japanese with him. And Yukio was in a state of shock. Lucas is now made it quite clear. What happened was in the very early part of COVID, two years ago, he was seeing online YouTube um, submissions of people that were starting to learn the piano and this and that. Remember that was big in the early days of COVID? Yeah, and baking bread. Yeah, yeah. Well, he decided to learn Japanese. And he got online with... The good thing is that you can get online apparently with people at a similar level and start your conversational Japanese. And he's now working very hard on written and read Japanese, the actual whatever they are. You know, because Japanese comes in two forms. Japanese can be written in our in our with our letters or with their own symbols. So he's now backtracking and learning the Japanese symbols. But his ability apparently to read and speak conversational Japanese is excellent, according to Yukio. I mean, can you imagine our complete state of shock? Yeah, I can't, I can't. it's just it's, it's, I'm still wrapping my head. It's, it's ridiculous. Well, well done, Lucas. It's interesting you never sort of let on about any of this at any that point. That is very Lucas. Okay. Yeah, if you if you knew Lucas, as soon as as soon as he started enjoying it and became proficient at it, the idea of a grand un, unveiling somewhere down the track at a Japanese restaurant, or preferably in Japan at the airport, would have struck him as particularly desirable. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the fact that it became top secret between him and his brother, the only other person who knew about it, was part of the allure. No, it's, uh, it's very commendable. Well done, Lucas. And we mean that seriously. It's a valuable thing to be able to speak another language. I think plenty of us wish we could. So, And a valuable use of your um, time in lockdown over the last couple of years. So well done. No, it's a very uh, encouraging story, finally. Reminded me a little bit of that. Family Guy episode where Chris starts speaking jive and Peter can't <laughs> understand a thing he says. <laughs> anyway, uh, all right. So my life hack, um, it's uh, yeah, an observational thing. So I'm 56. Like you, Finey, you know, we feel like, oh, you probably aren't in this boat because you get around a lot more. But I'm one of these people who, when I was a kid, I was in the city, and by the city I mean the CBD, all the time, you know, catching trams or trains to the football, going to cinemas, you know, um, so many things I went to the city for. I knew it like the back of my hand. And because it's the grid system and you know which streets are where and whatever, you sort of, once you get your head around it, you sort of think, oh, yeah, I know the CBD. And that's what I've always felt. But it only occurred to me last Sunday, and the reason I went in there, by the way, was a bit of a shopping expedition. Uh, it was time to sort of refresh the wardrobe, um, which which I did at some expense. But um, I was walking around and it's suddenly, well, a couple of things dawned on me. One, I keep hearing about how 
uh, COVID has destroyed the city. But, I mean, here it was Sunday afternoon. I know, you know, it's not as it was. Uh, things aren't dead in the city on a Sunday anymore, but um, certainly off-peak. Um, but there were people everywhere. It was really crowded. And um, shops left, right and centre, and it seemed to be thriving. So I didn't see this sort of dead city that the doomsayers keep talking about, which is good. But it just reminded me that, you know, despite the fact I reckon I know Melbourne really well, I actually don't because since I got my licence, which is now, you know, 37 years ago, um, and actively avoided public transport or, for that matter, going into the CBD, except when I absolutely have to, I haven't actually been there. I've skirted around it or driven through it as quickly as possible. So this was like my first time literally in probably 20 years having a good walk around the CBD. And uh, fair to say, perhaps not surprisingly, it's changed a fair bit. Um, all those little back lanes that were pretty dead, you know, when I was a kid, they're, they're alive, you know, they're alive with shops and cafes and the cafe culture of Melbourne is just sensational. And um where do, I, where do we go? We went to David Jones and we were around Meyer and walked through Chinatown. I mean, that's always been a thing, but some of the little laneways off, you know, Little Burke or Flinders Lane or whatever, great little funky, you know, shop fronts and cafes. And um, uh, we, you know, got hungry, so stopped at one of, you know, literally hundreds of, uh, restaurants. It was a Korean restaurant, so uh, that's changed too. You didn't actually order, give your order to a waiter anymore. You order online on an app and pay for it, and they just bring you your food. And there's actually no contact with the people in the restaurant, which is pretty weird. I know that's a bit of a thing now, but I'm still getting used to that. Um, but just everything has changed so dramatically. And um, my last point on this is, unless you're our age, finally, you you wouldn't probably comprehend the extent to which Melbourne has changed. So when we were kids, and I talk in every way, in, in socially, but also, you know, politically, for example, Victoria used to be called the jewel in the Liberal crown. You know, there was a Liberal government in Victoria for 27 consecutive years until 1982. Since then, as people may know, you know, it's become uh, quite a, a strong a Labor party stronghold. Um, Melbourne is seen as perhaps the most progressive capital city in the country. Um, you walk around the CBD and, and you see, you know, so many different uh, mixes of race, of culture, of, um, you know, the socio-demographic is so uh, melded as a cultural melting pot. You see so many different types of shops, uh, influences on the culture. It's fantastic. I feel like Melbourne is sort of like our New York in that regard. And we have changed so dramatically as a city over the last 30 to 40 years, but so much for the better as well. We are so much a better city because of things like immigration and because of our embracing of new cultures and, and um, change. And, and uh, you know, I think the city has been uh, dressed up in a really positive, inclusive sort of way. I'm getting a little bit touchy-feely now, but it was a really encouraging day and it made me feel great about being a Melbourneian. And, yeah, I, I love Melbourne. And, and uh, after, you know, rediscovering the CBD last weekend, I sort of understand again why that is the case. Anyway, that's my life hack. Does that all make sense? 
Who do you, who did you murder, Rowan? You sound like a somebody that's just been let out of prison what after do you mean? serving a, <laughs> what a, a thirty year sentence. Um, Why? Oh, I haven't seen the city for thirty years. It's oh, the laneways have got cafes now. <laughs> no, really? I, knew, I knew they did, but I just hadn't sort of acquainted myself with them. No, um, no, fair enough. But I'll say this: because I live close to the city, really, the CBD is sort of one of our suburbs, and I go there quite regularly. I thought you were going to when you said, you know, there's a couple of things you've noted about the CBD. There's something I've really become very clear to me in the last couple of years that I absolutely did not know when I was, because I always used to go to the city. I used to love going into the city. So as a teenager from 14 onwards, I didn't realise this, but now I realise something, Rowan. What is it? The city is not flat. It's very steep and hilly. And there's a lot of uphill bits and uphill walking. And during the week, I had to pick up um, a couple of, well, two queen-size blow-up beds and carry them a, a fair way in the city, and I was pretty puffed. <laughs> well, it's all it's all relative, I certainly mean, but it's not like Sydney or something like that, or um, what else was I thinking of? Lisbon. I remember Lisbon had, it was incredible for hills and stuff, but... Um, Have you been to San Francisco? I haven't. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. But I did watch the streets of San Francisco with... Carl Molden and um, Michael Douglas. They're steep. That is uh, that is very steep. Anyway, all right, there's our life hacks for this week. Uh, kid learns Japanese, old man rediscovers city <laughs> <laughs> is the headline on that one. Uh, all right, time for a bit more nostalgia now as we delve back into some fantastic footy flashbacks. <laughs> Footy flashbacks. Okay, flashback time. Uh, I know you reckon I'd pick too many uh, Essendon games, Finey. Well, I haven't for a long, long time. I deliberately steered clear of them, but uh, I just stumbled on this one last night and thought, you know what? This was a absolute ripper, and I reckon a lot of people, even non those of the uh, non red and black persuasion, may agree. Uh, absolute thriller, this one, between those old rivals of the, um, well, mainly, I guess, late 90s, early noughties, Essendon and North Melbourne. It is round 17. We're going back just a couple of years. 2019, round 17, the game played at Marvel Stadium, neck and neck, most of the afternoon, twilight Saturday, this game played at, and a thrilling Finish North Melbourne leading narrowly as we come to the final couple of minutes. Let's pick up the action. As uh, Taron has done on this occasion, got even numbers up. Oh, oh. A little adventurous kick. He went for Brown. Merritt well placed. The Bombers have got all the insurance at the back. Redmond, McDonald, Tip and Woody. Crash to the ground, no whistle. Brown rode out the tackle. Sard's going to send it forward again. Finally gets it under his control. Zerha couldn't stop him. Saad, McGrath, Merritt. Here's the kick. Oh, it's the same again. Well, well, the Bombers thoughts, they've got a man up. You can't have uneven numbers with a minute and a half well, to go. Even if you've got uneven numbers, you've got to create a 2v1 on Tarrant. He's the spare. Goldstein read it at the back. 
The numbers multiply around the ball. Clark gets it. Simpkins shows the umpire enough. So he's still, still there yeah. on his own inside. Fit. Go and square it up. Go down and take him number. Fantasia's saying, get down here. Even up. Anderson curls it back to the wing. All about the bounce. It gives Essendon hope. Francis Zerha desperate. And Robert happy to walk over the line. We're inside the final minute now of this game. What a game it's been. They've given so much. So they've won clearances all day here. There's none more important than this clearance right here for Essendon. Is there anything left to give for the Bombers? Straining every possible sinew. McGrath does his best. Up come from all angles. Brown. Kangaroos can get it forward. Bombers are ready to go to work. Francis takes it wide. McKenna eventually gets it under his control. Oh, what confidence. He kicks it. Clark almost. Fantasia been missing all day. Laverne in the square. Pulses racing everywhere. Oh, who else? McDonald. Listen to this. Bomber fans at full voice. Kangaroos with a 6-6-6 need to get it out of the middle. It comes out to the wing. McGrath. Down goes Atley. Down goes McGrath, but out comes the ball. And the Bombers are going to try it for what a triumph it is. <laughs> the sweet sound of the siren. Yeah, famous finish and once again brilliant call by Hado. It just it just makes you realise after probably a disappointing season this year, the value of Tipper and I, I, I sort of haven't factored him in because I'm pretty bullish about the Bombers next season. Gee, if he could regain his best form, Rowan, mm. that could that could just about be the um the, the cream on the, the the cream on top that could make Essendon a real prospect. Uh, settle down. We're keeping a lid on it, Finey. But uh, yeah, that was uh, he played a great game that day. That was his fourth goal, the match winner. There, really tight angle. He threaded that uh, from two. Um, I've got to say, uh, much as I would have loved to have been, I wasn't there, Finey. I was down at Geelong, uh, working for Three AW. In fact, watching your boys play the Cats down there. Uh, that was an evening game, but we. Uh, all watched the end of this in the commentary box. Fair to say I got a little bit excited at the end there. And in terms of atmosphere, so the ball went back to the middle with Essendon now leading, I think, 17 seconds left on the clock. Some great work from Andy McGrath to make sure Essendon won the last uh, clearance, sent the ball forward, thus ensuring victory. But when the siren went, that is one of the loudest roars from a crowd on the sounding of a siren, I think I've heard. It was phenomenal. Um, just an absolute guttural roar from the Bomber faithful. Uh, really, really exciting game of footy, that. And, and yeah, you're right, Tipper, he is just a, a special player. Let's hope he can 
get back to his best because uh, not just Essendon, but the game is better for him up and firing as he certainly did on that occasion. All right, Finey, what's your flashback? Let's go to round eight, 2016. Uh, the Tigers are hosting the Sydney Swans. Now, coming into this game, the Swans were high-flying, let me tell you. Seven games gone into the season. They were third on the ladder, one game off top, only uh, one loss in their first seven games. Actually, here's a good one. Do you know who was top of the ladder after seven rounds in 2016? Oh, GWS? North Melbourne. Oh, that's right. Yeah, was that? Yeah, that's the year they they had a huge first half of the season, didn't they? Yeah, Un- undefeated after seven games. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, Richmond, on the other hand, the polar opposite, only one win from seven games. So it's a nail-biting finish. Sydney lead by five points. Let's pick it up with about a minute and a half on the clock. I've got to get it moving. Minute 47 remaining. He has to pull the trigger here, Ellis. Through the corridor, it's the right move. Who can stand up? Off hands. And now it's Lloyd who jams it back inside 50. Chaplin, he can't pick it up. Rance again, well smothered. They keep it inside 50. They're out on their feet at the moment. Chaplin to Morris. Can they work it through by hand? They can. They found a little bit of space here. Dusty needs to be clean. A little bit of a panic kick. Didn't think about it too much. Perhaps he didn't have time. And the mark taken by Rampy. They've got a number back. They should be able to milk time here, Sydney. A minute and nine. Umpire says play on. He doesn't bother. Too tired. Franklin comes at the footy. Over the top they go. They need to find some space here, the Tigers. Out the back door, Martin caught with it. And Towers will be given the free here. So they can milk it. They must man up. There are Sydney players everywhere. The Swans players know it. They know how long he's left. Look at Franklin off the side of the ball here, Towers. If you just go wide, why wouldn't you? Hasn't looked at him. Buddy looked to the bench and said, how long? They said about 30 or 40 seconds. Now an opportunity here for the Swans. Rand's got it out. Little one over the top. Rioli did well with the spoil here. This is the Tigers' chance. They must go from here. Did really well over the top of the ball, Jones. Picked up by Franklin. Got it back inside 50. The Tigers, Sinclair. In went Hanbury. Heart of the footy. Here they go. Out the back door. Flossstone. Again, I think it's going to come back again. Picked up by Rewalt. Rewalt got it out wide. Griffiths, will he keep going? Will he go? Little one over the top of the mark's been taken by Lloyd. Five seconds. Lloyd is going to have a kick. After the siren. A goal is the only thing that matters. Boy! Look at the Swans, they're getting everyone back. Sinclair's pushing back. McVeigh saying, get down here, we can touch this on the line. Every kid dreams of this opportunity. Lloyd from 45 to win the game! He's got it! The Tigers have won by a point! A kick after the siren!
Yeah, really exciting finish. And uh, look, credit where it's due, Finey. I thought uh, Brian Taylor's call of the end of that was pretty good too. Uh, I'm certainly uh, one of those who's quite critical of BT at times, but I think he got that moment pretty right. Um, great kick from Sam Lloyd, really nailed it under uh, a heap of pressure. But, geez, and what ifs to the Swans too? Dean Towers, mate. You could have hung on to the ball a bit longer first off and then could have just chipped it sideways to Buddy Franklin, taken another 30 seconds off the clock, and that would have been about all she wrote. Uh, one attack left for the Tigers. In fact, the ball is still in Sydney's forward 50 with only, what, 20-odd seconds left on the clock. So, um, geez, the one that got away for the Swans, of course, they did go on and make the grand final on Richmond. Uh, ended up having a shocker, but um, that merely preceded, uh, well, one of the great eras modern football has seen. So maybe that was a, a little dress rehearsal of it. Uh, great finish there by the Tigers and a great finish in particular from Sam Lloyd. Good choice. Right, right, well, I, I just want to ask you. Yeah. Could that game, I mean, that was just a fantastic kick by Lloyd. Had he not kicked that goal, one win from eight games, the wheels almost off. Damien Hardwick might look back historically and say that that kick by Sam Lloyd sort of might have saved his coaching career. It was, it, it maybe wasn't on that game that his coaching career rested, but had that loss parlayed into a couple more, I don't think he would have seen out the season. Well, it wouldn't have helped. Um, and, of course, he did come under enormous pressure at the end of that season. Remember, Richmond lost their last game, the return game against the Swans at the SCG, lost by over 100 points and got absolutely destroyed. Um, but uh, the Richmond administration, uh, Brendan Gale and Peggy O'Neill, to their eternal credit, held their nerve. And uh, the results were soon proof of the wisdom of doing so. So, um, yeah, uh, sliding doors moment, definitely. But uh, they made the right call then and in that game when Sam Lloyd uh, delivered the Tigers' victory. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for your company, everyone, as we uh, get closer to Christmas. We've got one more show coming up pre-Christmas. We're going to have a couple of weeks off after that, but we've got one more podcast to bring you before the Christmas break. So look out for that uh, same time next week. Have a good rest of the week and weekend, everyone. And we'll catch you next time. Sayonara. Sayonara.